You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family loved and served by God, compelled to love and serve each other and Austin with God. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. I do want to thank all you guys for joining us this morning, our Midtown family. It is good to be with you. Uh, thanks for your commitment to continue to meet together, worship together like this. You know we're doing all we can to stay connected and grow as a family and serve each other during this time. So I am proud of you for, for making time this morning. I do see we have a number of visitors who are here, so I uh, welcome you. Uh, my name is Justin Christopher, and I'm the associate pastor here at Midtown. Nice to meet you virtually and hope that we can meet face-to-face sometime very soon, God willing. For those who've been at Midtown for a couple years, maybe you've definitely or no doubt have heard me say that there's a psalm for every season. It's something that I really believe that there's times in our lives when we can just flip through the psalms and find one that is really meant for us during a certain season that we're going in. Um, that's why I'm kind of excited that we're doing this for the third year in a row. We're having our Psalms of Summer uh, sermon series. There is, of course, 150 psalms, so we've got plenty to keep going back to. The thing I love about the psalms is that the psalms are unique prayers that people are praying from different circumstances and different ways of praying. And so what we're trying to do during this series is just learn different ways that we can pray and different types of prayers that we can pray um, in any number of circumstances. And so last week we looked at a prayer. We called it a cry for justice. Today we're actually going to look at what I'm going to call a cry for a revival. Before we uh, get to the psalm, though, I wanted to ask you all kind of two series of questions. Uh, first one is during this time of worldwide disease and social unrest and political unrest, have you been asking yourself a question like, what is, what is God doing in this? Like, why is this happening? What are his purposes? What's, what's really going on? What does God intend? I don't know about you, but I've been asking that question a lot. And I think that this psalm that we're going to look at today gives us at least one part of an answer to that. Our second question, there's a thing that's been happening, maybe less of a question I wanted to ask you guys, is have you sometimes during this period, again, of, of disease and unrest, have you found yourself sometimes not knowing what to pray? I've, been, I've found myself in that position a couple times where I'm, a couple times even this last week or last week particularly, I'd sit on my porch in the morning during my morning prayer time and I was just kind of sad and, and overwhelmed and didn't know what to talk to God about or what to ask for. And I don't know about you, but that's happened to me several times during the strange season that we're in. And one of the things I love about this psalm that it's done for me this week, it's given me some direction on a very clear way that I know that I can pray. And so I hope that the psalm that we look at it together will help us really with those two questions. What are you doing in this, God? And give me some direction. Like, give me something that I can confidently pray. So that's what we're going to look at here in Psalm chapter 80. It's a, a psalm of a guy named, by a guy named Asaph, and he was the um, lead worship leader uh, for the Israelites, for his people. And so here's the lead worship leader leading his people in this prayer for revival. Psalm 80, verse 1. Hear us, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who sit enthroned between the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Awaken your might, come and save us, restore us, O God. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. This prayer begins with an acknowledgement that God is sovereignly in control. And that God is a loving shepherd. He looks at God as a shepherd, one that is leading his people and tenderly leading them like a shepherd would lead a flock. And he acknowledges from the very start that God is on his throne, that God sits on his throne, meaning he rules over everything. 
this is how he starts this prayer for revival. It's, it's really not much different from the way that Jesus taught his disciples to pray when he told them first to say, Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It's coming to God first with a recognition that God is in control, that he's our Father, that he loves us, which is what gives us the confidence to pray and ask anything of him in the first place. We have to recognize that he is on the throne. And then Asaph comes to God with his first request. And you're going to see this repeated time and time again. But he says, awaken your might. Come and save us. Restore us, O God. Make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. Acknowledging God is in control. Acknowledging God is a shepherd. He then calls on God in the season that he's going through. He's saying, you're mighty. Will you please restore us? Will your face shine on us that we may be saved? He's trusting God to do it something that only God can do. If you're like me, I'm afraid that sometimes we put our hope in, in people. We put our hope in leaders. We put our hope in structures, organizations. And what he's saying here is God is the only one who can do this. God is who we're looking to. Now, I'm not saying that we can't be activists, that we can't try to be involved in something that's making a difference. But the question is, where is our hope really lying? Are we trusting in man? Or are we trusting in God? And from the start, Asaph's recognizing that God is in control, that God is sitting in throne, and he's the one that we can trust and go to in prayer. He continues his prayer by asking some questions, perhaps some questions that will be pretty familiar to something that you've asked this week or during this season. Verse four, he says, how long, Lord Almighty, Will your anger smolder against the prayers of your people? You have fed us with bread of tears. You've made them drink tears by the bowlful. You've made us an object of derision to our neighbors. Our enemies mock us. Restore us, O oh God. Make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. He starts with that thing, that, that question that we've all probably asked, how long? I don't know about you, but I've asked like, how long, O oh Lord? How long are you going to let this pandemic continue? How long are we going to continue to have this injustice in our world? How long are we going to continue to have such divisiveness in our, in our politics? How long? It's okay to come to God with our honest questions. We don't know exactly the context for why uh, Asaph was actually praying this prayer and praying this way. Um, it doesn't really matter because whatever the trial or, or thing that he was going through, it's relevant to pray this kind of prayer no matter what it was. But most scholars actually think that what he was, what he was coming to God about was actually the time when the Babylonians took over Jerusalem and knocked down the temple, they made uh, the Israelites, his people, subject to them. They made them slaves. And that's, in fact, Psalm 79 is really closely similar to Psalm 80, and Asaph prays Psalm 70, uh, 79. Some people actually think that these two were meant to be kind of psalms, psalms that were uh, meant to be prayed together. But in Psalm 79, it starts off like this. Oh God, the nations have invaded your inheritance. They've defiled your holy temple. They've reduced Jerusalem to rubble, and they've left dead bodies of your servants as food for the birds of the sky, the flesh of your own people for the animals of the wild. They have poured out like blood, that blood like water, all around Jerusalem, and there's no one to bury the dead. We are objects of contempt to your neighbors, of scorn and derision to those around us. Again, the same question, how long, O Lord, will you be angry forever? See, Asaph was devastated by the fact that the Babylonians had attacked Jerusalem. They'd ransacked the city. They'd overrun the people. It really was a bloody and filthy mess. The temple where they worshiped was completely destroyed and torn down. 
he's asking God, like, how, how long is this going to happen? He's asking, in a way, what are you doing behind the scenes, God? What is happening here? Now, Asaph had a little answer, an answer to this question that I think we might not have, but I want to I talk about that. Asaph had to answer this question because he was an Israelite. And to the people of God, he, they were given a promise about what would happen if they turned away from God. And it was a very promise that if they turned away, they would begin to get ruled by other people. And so there was also a promise, though, that if they returned and repented and came back to God, God promised that he would bring them back out of their captivity and restore them to their land and give them a place to worship again. And so they had a promise. Asaph could know because of God's specific promise to those people what the, what the situation was and what God was doing behind the scenes. I'm going to read kind of a long passage, but I think it really gives the good context for what's happening here. And this is at the apex of Israel's history. You follow all from when they were freed from, from Egypt all along the way, all the way to the very best point in history was under King Solomon. That's where they had the most peace. They had all the land covered, and they had this tremendous opportunity to build a temple or place for worship. And when the temple is finally built, the whole people gather in Jerusalem. They come to the temple to worship God, to thank God for the temple, to dedicate the temple to him, and then ultimately to give themselves over to say, yes, we're as a nation, we are going to follow God with all of our hearts. The apex of Israel's history is in this moment. And when it's over, after they have this worship service, God comes to speak to King Solomon, and this is what he says. When Solomon had finished the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, and succeeded in carrying out all he had in mind to do in the temple of the Lord and his own palace, the Lord appeared to him at night and said, I've heard your prayer, and I've chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. When I shut up the heavens so there's no rain, or command locusts to devour the land and send a plague among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I'll forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. I've chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name will be there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. As for you, if you walk before me faithfully as David your father did and, all that, and do all that I command and observe all the decrees and laws, I will establish your royal throne as I covenanted with David your father. And as I said to him, you shall never fail to have a successor to rule over Israel. But if you turn away and forsake the decrees and commands that I've given you or go off and serve other gods and worship them, then I will uproot Israel from my land, which I've given them. And I will reject this temple that I've consecrated for my name. And I will make it a byword, an object of ridicule among the peoples. This temple will be a heap of rubble. All who pass by will be appalled and say, what has the Lord why has the Lord done such a thing in this land and to this temple? The people will answer, because they've forsaken the Lord, the God of their ancestors who brought them up out of Egypt and have embraced other gods and worshiped and served them. That is why he brought this disaster on them. It's pretty clear to Asaph. Asaph, as a priest and a worship leader, he would have known of this promise. So when he was asking the question of God, why does it, he knew, he knew it was because the people had worshiped other gods. And you know, God was extremely patient with them. If you read uh, the book of First uh, and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, what you'll see is a yo-yo in the people of God, an up and down series of cycle of them repenting, 
then rebelling, then repenting and rebelling time and time again through this 470 year history from the time this temple was dedicated to the time when it was overrun by the Babylonians. And some people actually, I, I listened to a, a, a Old Testament scholar named Walter Kaiser and read one of his books called Revive Us Again. And his theory is that the book of First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles are a template of Second Chronicles 7, 13, and 14. I'll read those verses again to you. It says, when I shut up the heavens so there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land and send a plague among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin, will heal their land. This cycle in the book of Kings and Chronicles, you see it time and time again in this 470 year history. It's a cycle of people turning away from God God would bring some sort of devastation to the land. It would lead the people then to call out to him and repent and pray. And then there'd be restoration. There'd be healing. There'd be peace for years and years until the people wandered away and wandered away from God again. Now, this didn't happen every month. It didn't happen <laughs> once a week. We're talking about hundreds of years because God is so patient. God is so, so patient, giving them chances and chances and chances, time and time and decade and decade and century and century. But Asaph knew. He knew where they were at in the cycle right now. And so he writes this psalm. He's leading these people and he's calling them to repent. He's calling them to seek God and pray. He's remembering, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, that he will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. Now, I personally believe that this promise is a promise that is a promise for Israel. It was a promise for them. That said, I believe that it can still be true of what God might be doing in our nation. I'd be very, very skeptical to any pastor, including myself, or any leader that wants to tell you precisely why God is allowing this, or tell you exactly what God is trying to do. I'm not trying to do that today. But I believe I can say with confidence that at least one of God's purposes in this is to get our attention and call us back as a nation, as a people, to repentance and prayer. There's so much that we can repent of. Restore us, O God. May your face shine upon us that we may be saved. Restore us, O God. Make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. In 2003, I was doing a campus ministry at the University of Texas and had the privilege of hosting an incredible guest speaker for an event that we called Res Week. It was a week when all the different campus ministries in the week of Easter would all unite together and do public events throughout the whole campus. And I was really excited because we had this guy named Jackson Senyanga. He was from Uganda. He came all the way to Austin from Uganda to speak to UT students for a week. You can see a photo of Jackson here that I took back when he was on campus with us. <clears throat> Jackson was a leading pastor among many pastors in Kampala, Uganda in the late 1990s, and he experienced one of the most amazing revivals in history. I'd been studying it, and these videos came out called the, the transformation videos that told the stories of these revivals that were taking place in different cities and countries, and we'd been showing them to the college pastors. And so they said, man, we want to have this guy come speak to us and tell us, like, how was their city transformed? The background, if you don't know from Uganda, that there was decades of brutal, brutal, brutal violence under their leader, Idi Amin. And he was then taken over by Milton Obote, who didn't help the country much at all. They were devastated by tribal conflicts, corruption, wars, and destroyed by the AIDS epidemic. During that time, Jackson and a bunch of the other church leaders began praying. And they would have to pray through the night because they were, there were people getting martyred for, for praying. So they would sneak away and they would pray 
all through the night. And there began this movement of prayer through the night. And within years of God answering their prayers, everything changed in Kampala. Literally thousands and thousands and thousands of Ugandans, Ugandans were saved. Churches grew from literally like 20 people to 20,000 people in a matter of months. A godly Christian leaders where Abote was ousted as president and a godly Christian woman took his place and another godly Christian woman was appointed as, as attorney general. They created a whole new system in their government. They, they call it the Ministry of Ethics and Integrity and political corruption was diminished. Violence and tribalism ceased. The economy grew. It was one of the fastest growing in Africa and the AIDS epidemic. Uganda was the first country to see a rapid decrease in the AIDS epidemic. All this just within a decade of praying and seeking God and crying out to him. What fueled the ongoing revival there was the citywide prayer gatherings. In fact, what's so wild, on New Year's Eve of 1990, here's what the Ugandans did to welcome in the new millennium. They hosted an all-night prayer meeting from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m., brought in all the political leaders and all the church leaders in a public way with tens of thousands of people gathered in one stadium, publicly declared the nation back to God, dedicated themselves as a nation back to God, as they walked into the new millennium. Those prayer meetings continued. And in fact, the year that Jackson came to the University of Texas in 2003, they had the largest prayer gathering in their country's history. Three million Christians gathered to bring in the new year of 2003. Check out this picture of, of these people praying. Like that's, that's their stadium. And there were 50 stadiums filled like that. 50. Three million people crying out to God from 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. asking, God to do what only he can do. They were praying the same prayer of Asaph. Restore us, God. Make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. Restore us, God. Make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. When Jackson was with us, he you know, spoke to the students, and then he also spoke individually to all the college pastors that we gathered together. And, and there was one phrase that he told the college pastors when he was with us that just stuck, stuck with us. Like a decade later, I'd be talking, and we'd be praying, and we'd say, hey, remember when Jackson told us that? What he told us was that he says revival is going to come in one of two ways. It's going to come out of devastation or desperation. He said revival came to our country out of devastation. He goes, I want you guys to get desperate. But if it doesn't come by desperation, it can come by God's sovereignty and ultimately by God's great grace. It can come by devastation. I don't proclaim at all to know what God intends for our nation during this time of disease and unrest. But could it be that he's letting us experience the result of our sin to experience some form of devastation so that we'll call out to him again in repentance and prayer? Restore us, O God, make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. I'm confident, very confident in saying that's at least part of God's purpose. The reason I can be very confident in that is I know that's always God's purpose. God doesn't want that. It says that God doesn't want anyone to be unsaved. We can be confident that God has that purpose at hand all the time. And so we can take this prayer confidently along with Asaph to say, I'm going to pray this prayer for our time. God loves us so much that he will do anything to get our attention, to make us see that we need to repent and call out to him individually, as a city, and as a nation. And as a quick side note, because we know that he's doing this behind the scenes, this is why we need to be so faithful. At, at talking with our neighbors and our friends and our peoples. Like our friends that aren't following Jesus, that don't know him, that don't have the hope that we have, they're asking these same questions. 
which is why we can't just isolate during this time, but we have to reach out and make connections with our friends who are asking these same questions. Back to the Psalm. In Psalm 80, Asaph's going to add one more component to his prayer before he says the third refrain. If you haven't caught on yet, there's this refrain, restore us, make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. But in verse eight, he says, you transplanted a vine from Egypt. You drove out nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. You took, took root and it filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade and the mighty cedars with its branches. Its branches reached as far as the sea. It shoots as far as the river. What Asaph's doing here is he's, he's kind of through the metaphor of a vine. He's remembering what God had done, taking them from Israel, taking them to this very highest point, the kind of Solomon where they had peace all around them. And they've taken this metaphor actually used by Isaiah because Isaiah in Isaiah 5, one of his predecessors used the same metaphor saying in Isaiah 5 that God planted a vine and he cared for it. He did everything he could to take care of it, but it bore no fruit. What he says here in his, the way he's using the metaphor, he says you made this vine and grow and it spread. But right now it's been overrun by people, by pigs and by insects. He continues in verse 12. Why have you broken down its walls? Why? Oh, so that all who pass by pick its grapes. Boars from the forest ravage it. Insects from the fields feed, up, feed on it. Return to us, O God Almighty. Look down from heaven and see. Watch over this vine. The root of your right hand, your right hand is planted. The sun that you've raised up for yourself. Your vine is cut down. You're bur burned with fire. At your rebuke, people perish. Asaph's just calling on God to have mercy. He's trying to remind God, hey, we're your people. We're your vine. Would you have compassion on us? Would you have mercy on us? Which takes him then to the final refrain of the psalm. You've heard it before. He says, let your hand rest on the man at your right hand, the son of man that you've raised up for yourself. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us and we will call on your name. Restore us, O Lord, our Lord Almighty. Make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. In verse 17, you see that phrase there, let your hand rest on the man. Just as a, a quick side note, there's been many theological um, groups that try to understand who this man is. There's kind of three main interpretations. Some believe that it's actually talking about raising up another ruler like a, like a David or a Solomon. So we're praying that God would raise up a ruler, a righteous leader like David or Solomon. Some actually think that it's a messianic reference to Jesus, that really we're just waiting on him to come so that he can make our hearts truly repentant from the inside out. Others believe, like I do, that it's actually just another reference to the people of Israel, since in verse 15, a few verses earlier, he actually called them the son, the vine that he's planted. But it doesn't really matter who the man is. The prayer is the same. The prayer is the same. It's a second Chronicles 7, 14 prayer for us to be restored, to cry out to God in repentance. In fact, if we go back to look at verse 18 and 19, it's really clear. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us and we will call on your name. Restore us, Lord Almighty. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. It's repentance and prayer. Repentance right there. It says, we will not turn away from you. Revive us and we will not turn away from you. It's prayer. We will call on you. If you were to add up all the final phrases of the prayers that were prayed at the end of the psalm, it would be return to us. Watch over us. Let your hand rest on us. Restore us. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. I think those are the kind of prayers that we need to be praying right now. Individually, as a church, for our city and for our nation. Return to us, God. Watch over us. Let your hand rest on us. Restore us. 
Make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. I want to ask that you would join me in praying that kind of prayer. Real specifically, let's not pray just for a cure to coronavirus. And let's not pray that things would get back to normal. We want to pray more than that. We want to pray that God would have all of his purposes fulfilled for whatever he's doing behind the scenes and ultimately that we would be a revived and a renewed people. Not just normal again, but revived, changed by what God would do. I want to invite you to pray with me on that. Um, Man, I think that we have some room to grow as a church and praying uh, corporately. I think one of the things that we do really well as a church is is, uh, individual praying, like intercessory prayer. Man, we pray for each other and the prayer requests that come in every week. We're so faithful at that. And I know that when our, when our Midtown communities gather, we're faithful at collecting prayer requests and interceding for each other and not just doing it in that one meeting, but throughout the week. But if I could be so bold as to say one, one area I think that we could grow in is these kind of prayers where we gather together, not to necessarily pray for each other, but to pray and to ask God to move in our church and in our city and our world. And we've been doing that some on Wednesdays from 12 to 12.30. I know that time doesn't work best for everyone in the middle of a workday if you can slip away for a break or not. But I'm just going to put myself out there, give you the invitation that I want to find an hour to pray like this for our church and for our city, for our nation. And any of you want to join me, I want to encourage you to email me or text me this week. And those who want to do that, let's find a time. Let's find a time to ask God to restore us, to make his face shine on us so that we can be saved. I'll take you up on that invitation and we will find a time. So please contact me. I'm going to find a time and do it myself. Hopefully you guys will want to join me. I want to point out one last thing in this passage that I found was interesting. Of course, the, the, the refrain was constantly, restore us, O God, make your face shine upon us that we may be saved. But one of the things I noticed when I was studying it is that the, the words right before it changed in each circumstance, each time they use that refrain. It started off, oh God, restore us. Then it moved to God Almighty, restore us. And finally it moved to Lord God Almighty, restore us. It's almost like each refrain or each chorus in this song becomes more desperate than the previous. It's almost like each one becomes more confident than the previous. We're going, oh God, mighty God, Lord Almighty God, we're calling on you. I think we need some Lord Almighty God prayers right now. And I'm confident that this is one of the things that God's doing behind the scenes and one of the ways that we can pray when we're stuck on the porch like I am was last week thinking, what can I pray? I know that we can pray this. Restore us. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. Restore us, O God. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. Let me pray something along those lines to close us now. God, we do look to you. We agree with Asaph, you are enthroned. You are on the throne. And we do get confused and we say, how long? Why is this happening? In that confusion, we call out to you and say, restore us, O God. Make your face shine on us that we may be saved. Do a work of repentance and revival in us individually, in us as a church, in our city, in our nation. Bring us to our knees that we would call out on you, our only hope. 
Have your way with us, God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We hope this ministry has blessed you. If you would like to support this ministry, you can donate at midtownaustin.org.